Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My first interview guest is a, an accomplished writer whose books have uh, included 10 Women Who Shook the World. Well, no, actually, this is her only book, I should say. <laughs> I'm getting confused here. <laughs> My next guest on West Coast Live, Juliet Bell. Grew up here in California, always enjoyed writing and looking at the stars and had a grandmother with a ranch with peacocks and a lot of various things coalesced to produce this marvelous novel called Kepler's Dream. And lest you take my word for it, let me just read to you a bit from the New York Times Sunday book review that's going to be in tomorrow's paper. Ooh. At the start of this delightful and surprising novel, which quickly transcends the familiar arc of a young narrator in extreme circumstances, we were given Ella's illustration of the House of Mud and so on, and it continues. But in the end, it is Ella's voice, utterly captivating, idiosyncratic, rich and memorable, that ties all the pieces together in, yes, a kind of dream logic, making this not only an entertaining book, but an absorbing and artful one. Wow. And that was written by Danny Shapiro. It's a, it's a lovely uh, review under the headline, Broken Family Camp. So I, I say that just to let you know that it's uh, not because I know her personally that I'm putting her on the radio show. She's <laughs> a serious writer. Please welcome Juliet Bell to West Coast Live. Author of Kepler's Dream. Three, SB3. Three, three. Very, very continental to do three. Moi, moi, moi. Welcome to West Coast Live. I, I know that I've interviewed you before, and it's always been a great deal of fun because you also seem very closely related to my wife, Sylvia Brownrigg, the novelist. We're, we're still working out the details of our relationship. Yes. Yeah, I, I didn't know I was just, it's kind of exciting, actually. <laughs> I meant Sylvia and I. Oh, oh, oh you and Sylvia. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So you're married yeah. to two people. It's Apparently. Mormon. Yeah, I, yeah. Who, who knew? <laughs> right. Anyway, this, this novel I know a lot about because I happen to be around during some of the writing of it. And so uh, it's uh, just out this week. Congratulations, by the way, on all these lovely comments and reviews. Thank you. Now, this book is set in Albuquerque. It's the story of Ella, an 11-year-old girl who, because her mother has become uh, ill and requires to be elsewhere, it's the, sort of the classic mode where a, a girl, for instance, is, is on her own and has to find her way in the world and come to terms with who she is and, and her life. Where does she end up going in, uh, for the summer? Yes, yeah, so, so Ella is, is unmoored for the summer because her mother has to be uh, treated for cancer and her her father, while a well-meaning chap, uh, does fishing trips in Washington, and so she has nowhere to go while her mother is away for this treatment, um, except for this improbable place in Albuquerque where her paternal grandmother, whom she's never met, lives um, in a house she's heard about but doesn't know much about. So she spends the summer with this rather forbidding character in this magical and strange place. Uh, the, the father who is away, uh, Ella, honors with a cell phone ringtone of the Beatles song, Nowhere Man. He's always out guiding a fishing trip somewhere. He is, although by the end of the story, he is required to make his appearance. And she, one of the things that Ella accomplishes in the course of this um, adventurous summer is, is bringing together her father and her grandmother at this place that she... Uh, over the course of the story, it starts referring to as the House of Mud because it's an adobe house. Could you give us a sense of the grandmother? Uh, her name is Violet von Stern. That sounds like a forbidding name in and of itself. 
Yes, she's got a German background. And, and uh, what Ella has heard about her makes, uh, ahead of time, she says, uh, she seems a bit like uh, Cruella DeVille or Darth Vader, one of these people you've read about but don't think probably really exists. So wh when she comes to meet her for the first time, she's, she's, uh, she's nervous when she arrives at the house for the first time. And as you mentioned, the, the, the house itself is this very old adobe house. And one of her grandmother's many eccentricities that unfold over the course of the story is that she lives with about 80 or 100 peacocks around this kind of rough patch of land. So do we have a little section of the book we could hear? Yeah, so Ella has just arrived. She's been driven from the airport. She's brought with her for a sort of a, for companionship their, her dog, Lou. So he's in the truck that she's arrived in. And, and as, she, as they pull up in this very dusty driveway, the peacocks have been landing on the roof of the truck. And it's all a bit of a sort of safari-like experience to arrive at this place. As I, we may talk about later, is based on my actual grandmother's actual home. Ella has come from Santa Rosa, California which is where she lives. And this is from the chapter called The Good Grammar Correctional Facility. <laughs> <laughs> which is another way she refers to her grandmother's house. My grandmother stood very straight. She was taller than I had imagined, with jewels around her ears and neck so bright she glittered. She had the air of a queen. She was smiling, sort of, as she watched me approach. She looked exactly like my dad, if dad were an old lady with white hair and an emerald colored dress. It was eerie. Hello, Ella, she said from the doorway. She didn't seem to want to move, and I wasn't sure what the procedure was here. Was I supposed to go hug her, shake her hand, curtsy? Well, you're dressed for ranch work, I see, she said. My heart started to pound. Over blue jeans, I had on my Bernie's Burgers and Dogs t-shirt. Mom had brought it back from Chicago when she was there for a conference, and I'd worn it for good luck. Suddenly, it seemed clear that I should have been in an outfit suitable for a concert, or at the very least, a nice shirt. M my other clothes are all packed, I stammered. Sorry. No one told me there was a dress code. Don't tell me I'm going to have to wear skirts all summer. I'm glad to see you, uh, grandmother. I felt like I was speaking a part in some out-of-date play. Who in the world calls their grandmother grandmother? But grandma didn't seem to fit. Dad had suggested grandmother to me on the phone, and judging from her nod, he got that right. As I got closer, the object in my grandmother's arms started yapping. It was a high grating sound, and I almost jumped out of my flip-flops. I had no idea the furry thing in her arms was alive. Oh, don't be ridiculous, Hildy, she said, scratching what I could now see was the head of a tiny animal. There's no need to be jealous. This is Brunhilde, named for the German warrior. Where's yours? M my what? I didn't have a German warrior. Was I supposed to pack one of those too? Why hadn't someone sent me a list? Your dog. My grandmother's voice dripped with impatience. Oh, he's in the truck, I said. I think the peacocks, you know, scared him. The birds? Piffle. They won't hurt anyone. Why don't you let him out? Introduce him. <laughs> Juliet Bell reading from Kepler's Dream. Piffle. There you go. The piffle. Is that, is, isn't that a quintessential grandmother word? <laughs> it is. Uh, it is. Uh, it was enormously good fun, actually, to recreate not just the details of my grandmother's extraordinary home uh, and the way she lived, but also her language, because she was a great person to listen to and had some very uh, distinct ways of speaking, um, and also some, she, was, she had a very sharp sense of humor. And I do have a couple of quotes, literal quotes from her, and then some that I sort of made up on her behalf. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk uh, a little bit more about how you 
sort of shape uh, a woman that you knew as an adult and had a very adult life and to create a book that's good for, for people in their, in their middle years, uh, which is different from some of your other novels. But I'd like to hear Ella's voice because one of the techniques in, in this is that she writes letters periodically uh, to her mother about what's going on. So her mother has to be in this very extreme treatment uh, in Seattle for, for six weeks. And one of the tasks, and she and her mother are very close, and one of the tasks her mother gives her when she goes away is to write actual letters, which Ella's rather horrified to get this assignment because she knows how to send text messages and you know possibly an email at a stretch, but you know, a real old-fashioned letter is kind of a departure. But she's required. She, you know, her mother asks her, and, and as she says, "What am I going to do? Say no?" You know. Uh, so she writes about a letter per week in the course of this time that she spends in Albuquerque. Do you have that letter? Well, one of those letters handy here. And I also want to know about the library. If I'm mispronouncing it, if I may, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not how it's actually not how Ella says it. It's how it's it's an imitation of how her grandmother says it. It's more like library. <laughs> She's sort of a few little extra, her, but her grandmother isn't actually English. But there's a little bit of a kind of formal. So it's a sort of library. You know, with the, a library. You know, the, rhyming with February. You know. <laughs> yeah. So this is the first letter she writes home. It's dated Sunday, June second, Albuquerque. Tough to spell, and I used to think Mississippi was hard. <laughs> Dear Mom, well, I'm here. You can say that much. How about you? Are you there? I wonder if the nurses are as nice in Seattle as they are in California. Okay, letter writing. Here goes. I will try not to use too much bad text spelling. First, here are a few things I have learned since I got here. I think my stay with grandmother will turn out to be very educational. Number one, do not say what? if you don't hear someone. What, which I have been saying my entire life, turns out to be all wrong. You're supposed to say, pardon? Or even, I beg your pardon? Like people in old-fashioned books do. <laughs> Number two, it is never me and so-and-so or, the truth is, I remember you telling me this too. So don't say, me and Lou are worried we'll be bored out of our minds here. Do say, Lou and I are worried we'll be bored out of our minds here. <laughs> Number three, if someone has a lot of things in their house, do not call them stuff. <laughs> stuff is bad. You may say things, as in, wow, what a lot of things you have. You should not say, where did you get all this stuff? How do you keep track of all this stuff? Or why in the world do you even have so much stuff? Number four, like, used as a filler word, was invented by the devil. <laughs> like, whatever. The neighborhood is deadly, too. There are no kids anywhere nearby, unless you count whoever is locked up at the juvenile correctional facility a few blocks away. It's an ugly place with barbed wire around it that I guess is a jail for teenagers when they commit crimes worse than sarcasm. The only hope is this girl Rosie, the daughter of the nice guy Miguel, who works for grandmother, but I haven't met her yet. There's no barbed wire around here, but it does feel kind of like a prison. I call it the Good Grammar Correctional Facility. I won't get released until grandmother has fixed up my grammar. I'm thinking of drawing a map of the whole place while I'm here, which will help me get around and might help me plan an escape route. Just kidding. Grandmother also explained that her house is very unusual in being more than 100 years old and made of adobe, which is basically mud. I remember when we made adobe bricks in second grade with Mr. Cooper, and Josh Green cried because he hated getting so dirty. Anyway, you know all this already. You and Dad were here together once. You never told me about it. I love you, and I miss you. Ella. Oh. 
So Ella is this uh, 11-year-old girl. She's there for the summer uh, in this place, and there's a, a mystery that takes place. What, what is Kepler's dream in the title? Her grandmother has this extraordinary collection of books. She's been a bibliophile, a book collector for decades. And her book collection has become so vast that she actually has a separate building made to house this collection. So for the grandmother, it's an extraordinary honor to show Ella this collection of books, which of course, it's not as exciting as it might be for her to go to the mall and go to a movie. (laughs) But, But when she's shown this book collection, one of the prize items in the collection is a particular edition that I made up of a book that really exists. So Johannes Kepler, the famous astronomer um, and scientist, uh, wrote many books mostly about astronomy and, and, and other laws um, of the universe. Um, but he, he also wrote a book called The Dream of the Moon or The Somnium, which was published after his death, which is sometimes thought of as the first work of science fiction. Kepler imagined what it would be like to travel to the moon, and he was the first person to really imagine and write down the possibility of, of moon travel. 490 years before it happened, 460 years before it happened. And the, and the moon voyage, the Apollo astronauts come into the story too. Yes, yeah, so I, I sort of interweave uh, the, that, that theme of Kepler's book, which is, by the way, as I say, this very valuable edition that goes missing during the course of the story, so Ella has to figure out who, who stole it. But also the, the real moon travelers from the 60s, the American astronauts, feature in the story in a sort of imaginative way. Um, Ella's grandfather, who's no longer alive, was an astronomer and knew the astronauts. And so she communicates with her grandmother a little bit about that. Now, I downloaded a copy of this from the iTunes bookstore. How do you react to the idea that somebody could read a book about books on a pad? (laughs) Well, since I know you personally, I can relate the story that when you said, look, it's available for download, I more or less turned away and shadowed my eyes. Um, But in the morning, I was able to then face the reality and look on the iPad and be told how to screen the pages on the iPad, which I can't really do. But I mean, that's very different from the experience of a book and what this book represents and uh, the, the pleasure of words and language that weave throughout this and what Ella comes to discover in the, in the library. <laughs> so one of the, the contrasts that, that is of interest to me, because I have always been related to people who love books and collect books, uh, my mother, my more or less everybody in my family. So the idea, Ella, as an 11-year-old, learning that there are such things as these very rare editions and what that means. How could one book be worth that much money? Why might you have to wear gloves to touch a book? What a strange idea that is. And the grandmother, during the course of the summer, has these two slightly dubious-seeming high school students who are helping her catalog this collection because she's very behind on, on cataloging it. And, and she says that for them, she feels that for, she, the grandmother, feels that for these boys, they, they might as well be working on sort of prehistoric, you know, cave markings, the, the relation that they have to a collection of actual books. You know, so there's, there's sort of a theme in the story also of the different ways that, you know, stories have been stored over the years <laughs> and are stored now. And in shaping the story, knowing uh, your grandmother, there are some elements of her personality that are not in this book, and there are many elements that you've created for this character, Violet von Stern. What did you not want to include? <laughs> Yes, my grandmother was really um, a remarkable person and and a wonderful character to know and and also for a writer, a very tempting person to to tell a story about. She she died a few years ago in her 90s, mid-90s. 
Yes, and I became close to her in the last couple of decades of her life. I hadn't known her as a child at all. There are some elements of her life that would be more appropriate for a book for adults. <laughs> so I had to, I, I cut the number of marriages right down from four, <laughs> from four to one, <laughs> um, which really saved a lot of time, actually. So um, that was. Kind what, of, what about those lovely little airline liquor bottle collection that yeah. she had? Yeah, those didn't make that into this final cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there were, there were. Um, actually, it's funny because there is a scene in the afternoon where she and Ella have iced tea together, and I, I, I did, I did wonder in a story for children. I thought, should she have a glass or should she have a drink? No, she better have an iced tea. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, um, I simplified a lot. I mean, as I say, the thing that was most retainable about her was the the humor and her and her sternness underneath, which was you know a, is a person that Ella comes to know and really. Well, and also the peacocks. And the peacocks, they were just asking to be put into a story. <laughs> yeah. And and they they form a per, uh, a prominent part. Now there's also a, a death, a mysterious death that relates somehow to the the heavens, the stars, the Big Dipper. Yes, it's a mystery with, with several different elements in it. One of the things that Ella has to work out over the course of the summer is not simply who took this book and why and whether she can retrieve it, but also why there are these levels of estrangement in her family. Why did she not even meet her grandmother till she was 11? Why do her father and grandmother have such a troubled relation? How did her grandfather really die? So there, there are quite a lot of elements of her sorting out uh, family history she, doesn't, she didn't know. I think you've coined a new phrase for what Ella calls going to stay at her grandmother's adobe. You call it broken family camp. <laughs> yes. Um, having as a parent now experienced uh, the regular family camp um, <laughs> where you, you go with your family and, and do family activities together, um, one of the background elements in Ella's life is that she doesn't have a regular kind of family and her parents aren't together and there's a lot of fragmenting and even though everybody is basically a you know, an okay person whom she loves, there's, there, there are a lot of fractures. And so the idea of her spending a summer, you know, with a grandmother she didn't know and having to restore those, some of those breaks if possible, or at least, you know, heal them somewhat. This is a, uh, a process that took you how long to write? Rather a long time. <laughs> Was it different writing for a slightly younger reader? Because as an adult, I mean, I found this, you know, and I suppose this is a, you know, a uh, a conflict of interest to say this, but I, I read the book and I liked it. <laughs> but, uh, oh, it's not a conflict of interest. It's just an admission of truth. Uh, but the other, the, the other thing is, did you have to change vocabulary at all? Yes. Uh, I mean, there's this, it was an interesting tension in the, in the, you know, rewriting and editorial process. You know, how much do you pare your vocabulary down to what is thought to be best or most appropriate for 11-year-olds? And do you, you know, do you push a little bit and include a couple of words? Well, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to kill them to have to look up a word here or there, you know, you know, after all, you know, my grandmother's voice, I mean, from, you know, piffle, <laughs> you know, they can just get used to it if they don't know that word. So, but sometimes, obviously, I had to be corrected on that and scale back my language and simplify things. You've, you've written some uh, other characters of, of children. There was a character, Martha Abbott, in uh, the metaphysical touch, and the delivery room also dealt with children and young people in in various ways, and so did the morality tale. the The role of of children, how they sense the world, seems to be of concern to you as a writer. Yes, and I think that's one reason I always had thought I might write for children because I was a very passionate reader at precisely this age of this kind of book, and, and also I just enjoy the imaginative world that 
you know, children often inhabit. Um, this is actually the first book of mine that really has a mother-daughter relationship in it or a mother-child relationship in it that's central. But, uh, but yeah, I think I always was interested in, um, in exploring the world with that voice. I always thought I might at some point. So why choose a different name than Sylvia Brownrigg to write as Juliet Bell? Yes, it was a it was a debate uh, both in my own you know mind and, and between me and friends and colleagues about whether that was the right thing to do or not. But I, I if I write other books for children, I, I want there to be a, a a sort of separate freer person who can write these stories for children. I, I'm at the same time rather pleased that I'm not making a very big deal about not being Sylvia Brownrigg and the fact that it, my name is mentioned, Brownrigg is mentioned in the New York Times is it's pleasing to me also. So there's clearly an ambivalence I feel. But I but I would like to write other stories for children and I, I think it, I, I feel that it will allow me to have these separate worlds I inhabit as a writer. To what were some other aspects of your, your grandmother? I mean one of them I knew is that she kept skunks for a while. She named one of them Chanel number no. five. Uh, <laughs> Uh, she was she was somebody. Can we talk about her for a minute? Yes, absolutely. I think it's important to say de-glanded skunks. Oh, de-glanded. Yeah, right. <laughs> she didn't have to walk around too carefully around them. I mean, she was somebody who was who was first married at age twenty, at a time of life when I don't know how would you describe her that that time of life. I mean, she was somebody who went to school here in the Bay Area, ended up getting married in England and then went through these various marriages and children and adventures. How did she end up in Albuquerque, of all places? So she was married four times, and her first husband was my grandfather, who was also a writer, although he died very young. Um, so he was, he was the brown rig, and he was English. And then her other marriages, you know, as often happens with women, took, took her to different geographies, uh, the most prominent of which was Albuquerque, because she was married to the city manager of Albuquerque for several decades, and that's what took them as a couple and their family to this house where she lived for the rest of her life. Her final husband, um, her terminal husband, no, her, um, her, her <laughs> concluding, uh, I'm not quite sure what the right word is. Was, ultimate. Uh, yes, that's right, ultimate, there we are. The Omega. Um, he, <laughs> he was from Philadelphia, and she kept his name. Uh, he died of a heart attack rather early on in their marriage, but she kept his name for the five decades or four decades left that she was alive after he passed away. So she was quite, but so most of her life, really, she lived as an independent woman. But She had a fascination with astronauts. She did. She did. I actually think that was related to one of her husbands. Not that I can remember which one, but... Um, <laughs> but, um, but Air Force connections or something. Yeah, something. Um, but the... But the book collection, the book collecting was really entirely her project. In the story, it's something she shares with this husband who is very much a fictional creation. The astronomer husband is not one that she had. Um, but, um, but in the story, they, they are book collectors together, and this was a connection in their marriage. And that, that is not something that happened in her own life, I think. The library itself was really a, a remarkable place, the actual library. It was a separate building. It was filled. It was probably twice as tall as the room that we're in now, or the room that you might be in at the moment, uh, wherever you're listening. And and about almost as and because of dealing with book preservation issues in the in the desert, it was a, a fascinating place. But because she started collecting books so early on, and she loved them, the collection was remarkable. It ended up getting dispersed to various uh, important libraries around the around the country. But she loved collecting like ephemeral. She was in correspondence with Ansel Adams. For instance, you know they were, you know, when Ansel Adams lived out in the avenues of San Francisco and was doing, it was just sort of this amazing range of literary and publishing history. 
you know, did she ever run into any kind of dodgy bookseller like shows up in the book? There, there is a dodgy bookseller in the in the story, but mostly because I needed a villain. Um, I, I think most of the booksellers she actually encountered were very fond of her, um, uh, probably as she was quite a loyal customer, and also um, just because she was very good fun to talk to about about books and literary matters. She her, she did intersect with interesting writers in the course of this long life, including you know the time she spent in London, and then you know she I like to tell the f- story of J. B. Priestley and Jaquetta Hawkes visiting her in Albuquerque and, and and other figures she knew in in the course of this adventurous life. She was also a terrific traveler, as as you'll remember. She went to Antarctica several times and just traveled the world were with different sorts of companions. Um, one of the things I was going to say about the library that is a description that comes up in the story, and I did feel this, that in some ways it was a bit like a chapel. I mean, it was, a, it was a, it, in some ways a sacred place for her. Um, she was, of course, a voracious reader as well as being a collector. It wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was partly the books as things, but it was also the contents of the books, and she was fluent in several languages. Will Ella show up again at some point? Have you thought about that? I think my, my young assistants, Samuel and Romilly, are occasionally giving me uh, story ideas for, for parts two or three. Uh, and meanwhile, Juliet Bell has promised on the, uh, in the author bio that, that she is working on a new book about a boy on a river. So somebody has to make good on that promise. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called Kepler's Dream, published by Putnam. Juliet Bell, thank you very much for being on West Coast Live. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.